Well, as it turns out in God's providence, the Israelites have a similar complaint to make to God that we might be tempted to make to him today with news like that. This morning we will once again find ourselves sprinting rather than walking through God's word because we have a large chunk of text to work our way through in the next half hour or so. My apologies for that. But before we begin to break new ground in Malachi chapter three, we should briefly remind ourselves of the bird's eye view of Malachi. What are the big picture elements of the entire book that we need to keep in mind at any one moment in time as we're looking sentence by sentence or word by word through it? God is speaking through the prophet Malachi to the Israelites near the end of Old Testament history, sometime in the 400s BC, most likely. And in spite of everything that has happened in the past up until this point, all the times that their ancestors rebelled against God, all the times that God justly brought uh, discipline upon his wayward people, all the times that God showed them unmerited favor and grace and mercy, still the Israelites are complaining that God has somehow been unfair to them or unkind because they arrogantly think that he is unworthy of worship, even the priests are slacking in their religious devotion and they are besmirching God's honor. Yahweh is thus taking Israel to divorce court, not because he's going to dissolve the Sinai covenant right away, but because he's going to demonstrate that Israel has been unfaithful to him and he is going to prove that he is in the right. Through the four chapters of Malachi, uh, God makes six basic accusations against Israel. They attempt to defend themselves six times, and then God provides evidence for his claims six times. In chapter three, we're going to examine the fourth, fifth, and part of the sixth claims that the plaintiff is making against the defendant. Brother Jacob will conclude for us the sixth claim this evening. Now, all three of Israel's complaints that we're going to look at today are related to the topic of God's justice. And the three points we're going to look at today are God's justice foreseen in Jesus, God's justice trusted through giving, and God's justice promised to believers. And it appears that I've lost my uh, title text, but oh well, it won't be the end of the world. We'll, we'll persevere regardless. Our first major point, oh, there it is, there it's back, okay, there. Uh, the Holy Spirit works in spite of our inadequacies, that's all I'll say. So point number one, God's justice foreseen in Jesus. Yahweh begins his accusation in chapter two, verse 17, technically, He says, you have wearied Yahweh with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone everyone who does what is evil is good in Yahweh's sight, and he is delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? Here we see 
the, the heart, the, the basic point to Israel's counterclaim against God. Why does the world not make sense? There are many places in Scripture, prime example being the book of Proverbs, where you have a basic um, general truth stated. If you live in a way that honors God, good things will happen. If you live in a way that dishonors God, bad things will happen. And we can certainly say that that proverb is generally true. If you live wisely, as a general rule, life is going to go well for you. Whereas if you live foolishly, well, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. We all know someone who is an exception to that rule, though. We either know a faithful believer who has suffered more than their fair share in this life, or we know a wicked person who always seems to get away with their schemes. They always come out on top, and they're never called to account for what they've done. The question of why God doesn't always immediately execute justice is a legitimate question, even though in context the Israelites are asking it illegitimately as a way of trying to disobey God. Now, Yahweh's response to this question begins in chapter 3, verse 1. But before we begin walking through that text, I want to give you the bottom line up front, because this is going to be a dense text that we're going to have to spend a disproportionately large amount of our time on. Bottom line up front of chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. John the Baptist will be the sign that Jesus is about to arrive. And when he does, he will perform a great cleansing work that will allow his covenant people to please God in their service. That's the point that we're going to be leading up to for the next few minutes. So let's get started. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. God says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant that you delight in. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of armies. What we're being told here is that God is going to send two individuals to Israel. It's kind of hard to see what's going on here, but this is one of those times where the syntax of the original language can be very helpful. The first individual in the verse, um, my messenger highlighted here in green, will arrive before the second individual uh, called the Lord and the messenger of the covenant highlighted in dark blue. Now, the reason that we can know that the, um, the two messengers are two different people is because the two phrases beginning with the dark blue titles, the Lord and the messenger of the covenant, those two phrases are syntactically identical, meaning that they have all the same words in all of the same places performing the same function. So we are to understand that these two lines are talking about the same person. Notice that this second individual, the, the blue one, is called the Lord. We're told that the temple belongs to him, and he is also identified with the speaker of this entire verse, Yahweh himself. We're being told something extraordinary. 
This individual is God himself, and yet he's also distinct from God. How is that possible? How is that the case? Well, because we have the benefit of the New Testament in our Bibles, we have a category that helps us to understand what's going on here. The man in blue is Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and truly God, and yet distinct from the Father. This is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is one of numerous Old Testament passages where God gives ancient Israel hints that although there is one true God, he is complex in his unity. In our modern world, you will find lots of groups like Muslims and atheists who claim that the New Testament authors made up the concept of the Trinity and that the Old Testament provides no foundation for such an understanding of God. But Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 is one of a long list of passages that disproves such a notion. Now let's ask the question. Why are both the green individual, John the Baptist, and the blue individual, Jesus of Nazareth, why are they both described as messengers? In the ancient world, a messenger, a malach, could serve uh, several different functions depending on the context that you put him in. These two are messengers in a different sense from one another. In John's case, when a king would travel from one place to another, he usually traveled as part of an entourage, an entire caravan of people, and as a result, he would move quite slowly. He would often send a messenger, a runner, ahead of him toward the destination to arrive early and let the people living there know that, hey, the king is on his way. This gave them the opportunity to prepare for his arrival and give him a proper king's welcome. As the messenger ran, he might also remove boulders, debris, animal carcasses, any number of other things that were lying in the road um, and that would hinder the king's progress. He would clear the road so as to honor the king and make his journey easy. So the analogical thinking here becomes obvious. A few hundred years after Malachi, John the Baptist is going to arrive on the scene and proclaim to the Israelites that the king, the Lord to whom the temple belongs, is about to arrive. The sense in which Jesus is a messenger, though, is different. A messenger could also carry a gift, an object, from one person to another. The king of one nation might send a gift to the king of another nation in the hopes of preventing warfare for example, as a kind of peace offering. Now, interestingly, the book of Hebrews describes the angels of heaven as being messengers in this sense. They were the deliverers of the Sinai covenant. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. If the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Within the broader context of Hebrews as a whole, the author is making a comparison between the old and new covenants. Uh, why the covenant of Jesus is superior to the covenant made at Sinai. 
And here the author tells us that Moses received the terms of the Sinai covenant through messenger angels, through intermediaries, excuse me, rather than directly from the hand of God. Now, in the same way that angels functioned as messengers bringing the old covenant at Sinai, so too Jesus is going to be a messenger bringing the terms of the new covenant that will be sealed in his blood. And as we continue in Malachi chapter 3, we see further descriptions of what Jesus' arrival will, be look like, will look like. Excuse me. What will it look like when he brings this new covenant? Verse 2, who can endure the day of Jesus' coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. Now here, <clears throat> excuse me, Malachi uses two metaphors from everyday life in ancient Israel to illustrate a theological point. First, somewhere in the distant mists of time way back when, ancient man in his genius figured out that you can purify precious metals like gold and silver by heating them up to such extremely high temperatures that they melt and then the impurities that were present in the gold rise to the surface of the liquid where they can be easily removed and the gold or whatever metal it is happens to be thus purified. Secondly, the ancients also somehow knew, I, their, their genius astonishes me every time I think about it, but somehow they also found out that if you take um, the crushed powder of a Mesopotamian ice plant and mix it with water, you get a bleaching agent that is very effective at cleaning stains out of clothes. So the meaning of the metaphors thus becomes obvious here. The day of the Lord's visitation is going to be a holy event, but it's also not going to be an entirely pleasant experience. Fire purifies gold and bleach purifies clothing, but the purifying processes to do that are unpleasant ones. I'm sure the gold does not enjoy being melted into liquid. These processes are unpleasant ones that require a lot of labor and pain, and so too Jesus intends to purify his people through pain. But to what end? Verses 3 and 4, he will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to Yahweh in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please Yahweh as in days of old and years gone by. So here we have a little bit of an interpretive challenge. This couple of verses is more difficult to figure out than we might think because the text initially seems to indicate that the result of Jesus's work on Calvary is going to be that the Levitical priests will be cleansed, they will repent, and then they will offer pleasing sacrifices in the temple again. That's certainly what it, it seems to suggest anyway. But there are both historical and theological problems with that. The historical problem is just that it didn't happen. 
<laughs> There's not a better way to say it. If you're understanding the text in a woodenly literal way, which you should be very careful about doing with prophetic texts, this never happened. Throughout the rest of the first century, after Jesus' death and resurrection, neither the priests nor any of Jesus' Jewish opponents as a whole, as a group, none of them repented and turned to him. They remained in rebellion right up until the end. And ever since the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD, there have been no priests and there have been no sacrifices. But more than that, actually, even more concerning than the historical problem is also the theological problem. Uh, namely, that, uh, I should back up. This theological problem, thankfully, is also going to be the key to understanding what's being communicated here. For nearly 2,000 years, there has been no temple in Jerusalem, and there has been no need for a sacrificial system because Jesus himself is the perfect fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. The book of Hebrews, especially chapters 5 through 10, talk at great length about this subject, why Jesus is the final and great high priest. Just one brief example from chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. The author says, Now many have become Levitical priests, since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he, Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is the last and only priest that we need in terms of having peace with the Father. However, we also have the biblical idea that while Jesus is the one great high priest, believers are meant to be a lower rank of priests underneath him in the sense that we serve as mediators bringing the good news of the kingdom of God to the rest of the unbelieving world. The, uh, <clears throat> the earliest clear example of this idea is found at the foot of Mount Sinai when uh, God says to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 19 verse 6, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. They were meant to be the, the corridor, the blessing through which the entire world would be drawn back to God. And he, God didn't say this just to the Levites. This is being spoken to the entire covenant community, all 12 tribes standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. But we all know, if we know our Old Testament history at all, Israel failed miserably at this task every single step of the way. But by the New Testament period, we see the Apostle Peter applying this very text, these very titles, to followers of Jesus. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the Apostle Peter says, you, speaking to uh, Christians as a general rule, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are all 
priests. Not in the sense that we save anyone. No, no, no. To be very clear, that is Jesus alone. But we are sent by God. He, he has chosen us to be his vessels, his messengers that bring the good news of the gospel to the entire world. This then helps us to understand what's going on in Malachi 3 when we're told that as a result of Jesus' visitation, the sons of Levi understand that as us, Christ followers. We will make pleasing offerings to Yahweh in righteousness. Because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, our sins are washed away, our hearts are made new, and our Heavenly Father is pleased when we do things for the sake of His kingdom. When we teach a kid's Sunday school class, when we make beautiful music for the sake of his praise, when we invest in the lives of our unbelieving neighbors, when we translate the Bible into languages that don't have a Bible yet, all of these things and many others besides, when we as believers do them for the sake of God's glory, these are pleasing sacrifices in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Concluding this portion of text in verse 5, God continues, I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says Yahweh of armies. Now, as far as I could tell, in the sources that I consulted, there doesn't seem to be any kind of um, rhythm or logic as to why these specific sins are being listed. Oftentimes, when you have lists of things in Scripture, there's an internal logic to it that, that makes it clear that they're presenting it in that specific way for a specific reason. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul provides a list of sins um, that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, unrighteous people that are destined for wrath, they do these things. And what's interesting is, if you look at it closely, Paul's list of sins in 1 Timothy 1 mirrors the structuring of the Ten Commandments. Paul's not just making a random list of sins that he in particular doesn't like. He is following the structure of the Ten Commandments, and it, it becomes so amazing and so powerful when you see that. But here in Malachi 3, there doesn't seem to be any discernible pattern in this list of sins beyond just saying that these are particular sins that the nation of Israel is especially guilty of at this point in time. That's the most we can say. Israel is guilty of these sins, and God is going to hold them to account for it. Finally, verse 6, let's end on a more positive note. Because I, Yahweh, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Yahweh is consistent even when his people are not. He is faithful even when we are faithless. So although here in Malachi, we find ourselves once again at the end of Old Testament history with a nearly perfect fail record on the part of Israel. God still intends to see his Abrahamic promises through to the end. 
he will continue to preserve faithless Israel through whom the Messiah will soon come. Now, I mentioned at the start of the sermon that although we have a lot of text to get through and not much time in which to do that, I have just spent the lion's share of my time on the first of three points. Why did I do that? Messianic prophecies are dense. They are filled with a lot of information in a very small space, and they tend to be difficult to interpret. Now, I'll have to go into more detail about this at a later point in time. It's another sermon for another day. But Michael Heiser called this the messianic profile. Basically, God intended for the Old Testament messianic prophecies to be few, far between, and cryptic so that the powers of darkness could not connect the dots ahead of time and prevent the crucifixion from happening. It's, an, it's a fascinating insight, and, and I'd love to talk about it more later, but the point for right now is that verses 1 through 6 are intentionally difficult to understand. So anytime that you run across uh, a messianic prophecy as you're reading your Old Testament, be prepared to slow down to stew on it a while, to chew on what's being told to you because you're supposed to wrestle with it a little bit. Thankfully, our next two points aren't nearly as difficult to interpret, so they'll go quite a bit quicker. We, uh, we won't be here until 6 o'clock when it's time for Brother Jacob to tell us about chapter 4. So let's, uh, let's move on now, beginning with God's fifth accusation against Israel, starting in verse 7. Let's now discuss God's justice trusted through giving. Reading now Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, excuse me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? With the implication being that they never left. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says Yahweh of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. And I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says Yahweh of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says Yahweh of armies. Now this passage may sound familiar to you. It is unfortunately one of the favorite go-to passages of the prosperity gospel preachers. And even churches that aren't officially associated with that movement will still use this passage as a way of pressuring people into giving more money. But I hope that the time that we've spent going through the entire book of Malachi, not just this passage, has disabused you of that notion. This passage is not a universal promise to all people everywhere that if you just give more, God will miraculously fill your bank account. I hope that we can see that such an interpretation actually goes against the themes and flows of the book. 
To be sure, believers should give to the church for the sake of furthering God's kingdom. But the primary theme at work here in verses 7 through 12 is trusting God's goodness even when everything seems out of control. Remember from last week when we were in, oh, there we go, there we go. Last week we were in chapter 1, and in verses 8 through 14, God critiqued Israel for offering sick, lame, and blind animals on the altar. But the issue at hand was not the quality of the animals themselves. The issue was the heart condition of the givers. They cared so little about the holiness of God that they were phoning it in with their religious devotion. A very similar principle is at work here in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12 as well. God's issue is not with the quantity of money that's coming into the temple, although it is indeed much lower than it should be. But what God really cares about is the reason why people aren't giving to the temple's service. They doubt that Yahweh is a God of justice. Based on what they see around them, they doubt that he will reward the righteous and punish the wicked. They fear that if they give too much, Yahweh will not provide for them in their time of need. God's response to their doubt is essentially the same answer that he gave to Job in his time of suffering. Trust me even when you can't see and even when you don't understand. I have a plan and I will see you through it. Our third point, God's justice. There we go. Hey, there we go. God's justice promised to believers. Verses 13 through 18. Yahweh lays out his sixth and final accusation against Israel. Verse 13, your words against me are harsh, says Yahweh, yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before Yahweh of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. The defendants seem eager to justify themselves. So they rush back to the argument that they made in chapter 2, verse 17. God lets the wicked get away with their crimes, and he doesn't protect the innocent, so why should we be devoted to him when we don't have a guarantee that he will ever give us justice? It's beyond the scope of our time together this morning for me to go into the topic of theodicy, justifying God's existence and goodness in light of all the evil in the world. But with Pastor Vic having been in this pulpit all these years, I'm, I'm certain that most of us in this room have had sufficient grounding and teaching in that regard. We know that in spite of all the evil we see around us, that God is still working all things together for good and that there will be justice done on the final day. What we can say for right now is that the Israelites' question here is understandable 
and it has some serious emotional weight to it. But we as believers know that it is still an unjustified question. And we still know that even if we don't understand all of the minutiae, we know that an answer will be given. But at this point, we might be tempted to despair. Looking at the situation that this text presents to us, it seems as though, once again, all of the nation of Israel has forsaken the Sinai covenant. They have forsaken the God of their ancestors. Have they really forgotten their lesson yet again? Does all of Israel really think this way? After everything that God has done for them in centuries past, have they really gone astray once again? The next handful of verses bring us some relief. To paraphrase the book of 1 Kings, God has still preserved his faithful 7,000, and they are still tightly clinging to God and to one another. Verse 16, at that time, after Israel has finished making their accusations, those who feared Yahweh spoke to one another. Yahweh took notice and he listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared Yahweh and had high regard for his name. We, have, we see this concept of God keeping heavenly record books in many places in Scripture. Just a couple of examples. Psalm 56, verse 8. You, God, you yourself have recorded my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not written in your book? Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. In Revelation chapter 20, at the, the scene of the great white throne judgment, I, John, also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works uh, by what was written in the books. Skipping down to verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The analogy at work here is that God sees every injustice. He knows about every believer who has ever suffered with seemingly no resolution, and he knows about every rebel who has not yet suffered the consequences of his actions. Just because God has not yet delivered justice does not mean that he never will. There is coming a day when the judge of all the earth will do right, and those of us whom he has redeemed and given a new heart, we know that. We trust that he will come through on that promise just as he has for every other one. Verses 17 and 18 in conclusion. They will be mine, says Yahweh of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not. And I think we can all certainly say a hearty amen to that. And if we may, while we're on a positive note, if we may conclude there, what can we take home with us from Malachi 3 today? First, 
and not to state it too tritely, but be a priest to someone. Evangelism is a scary thing. There's no two ways about it. But when you stop and consider it, we've got the easy part of the job. Jesus did all the heavy lifting for us, bearing the full wrath of the Father to cleanse us, make us priests, so on and so forth. All we have to do is tell people about it. In the grand scheme of things, that's really not such a big deal, is it? Second, trust in God's provision, and I mean that financially and otherwise. I have no doubt that there are people in this room who are struggling financially, losing a family member, going through any number of difficult circumstances that make you feel like your whole world has gone topsy-turvy. Nothing is stable. Nothing makes sense. It's hard to even think beyond the moment. How am I going to live minute by minute through this? And even in that, God is still present with you, although it may not feel like it. He is faithful, and He will see you through to the other side, even if it may not be in a way that you would have thought or conceived of. Third and finally, rejoice that your name is in the ledger. I don't know what the Book of Remembrance looks like. In my mind's eye, I like to think that it's a gold scroll and that the ink that's used to write in it is silver. But regardless of what that book looks like, it is a joy beyond description if your name is written in it. I presume that most, if not all, of the people in this room are redeemed sinners, in which case, spend a few moments today pondering the fact that your name is indelibly etched into those divine pages that will one day be opened and tallied. All of life's problems that seem so big right now almost vanish into non-existence in comparison to that. Let's pray. Great ledger keeper, thank you that our names are written in that book. That through all of the painful circumstances in life, this attack that has taken place in Cameroon and the, the perpetual struggle that is the Middle Eastern conflict and all of the other wars and rumors of wars that are taking place in this world and all of the personal problems that we alone are dealing with. Those things have not gone away yet. But we thank you for messianic prophecies like Malachi chapter 3 that gave us incredible promises of a Savior to come. And because of those promises, because those came true every single time, we know that the promises that remain to be fulfilled 
of a new heavens and a new earth, those will come to pass as well. Remind us of that regularly as we go through this life that is fraught with difficulty, as we experience tragedies great and small every day. Remind us that our names are in the book, that a place has been saved for us at the table, that there is a throne that has our name on it, and that until the day when we go to join the great feast, until the day when we are tallied and allowed in the pearly gates, you have given us a mission, and that mission is to be priests that offer pleasing sacrifices to you. Enable us, Holy Spirit, to fulfill that role, to bring the Great Commission to a completion so that all the world may worship you and all the world may be renewed. Through the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen.